Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the nature podcast is Mother Earth, think of Backchat as a collection of mysterious dwarf planets in the far reaches of the solar system. We're back to digest our favourite stories from this month's science. I'm Kerry Smith and joining me are one regular correspondent and two special guests. The regular first, Ewan Calloway is here. Why am I just regular? I'm special. Um, (laughs) Hi, I'm Ewan Calloway. I'm a reporter at Nature in London covering genetics, evolution, Neanderthals, you know, stuff like that. Very special indeed, Ewan. You are right. (laughs) Even more special today are the visitors we have in London from the Washington, D.C. Office of Nature. Our two U.S. news editors join us. We have Matt Crenson. Hi, I'm Matt Crenson. Uh, I've been with Nature only since last May, and I'm the chief news editor in Washington. And we have senior news editor in Washington also, Lauren Morello. Hello. So my background is in climate change, but I gleefully edit everything. Excellent. I've seen that glee. I like that glee. This month, we will be spying on some dwarf planets which look a little bit icy and a little bit active in various ways. We're going to plan NASA's next phase of missions for them. And we're going to discuss gene editing, the recent controversy over the new CRISPR technique and what it might teach us about extinct species, maybe, she says with a question mark at the end. First, um, Lauren, you've been working on quite a lot of stories recently um, with our reporter Alexandra Witsey, who is our, one of our biggest space nerds. Um, so, so tell us about NASA's plans, first of all. NASA doesn't buy its diary like just for the next year, does it? It's got, it's got all of its diaries for the next kind of decades. It plans over uh, a really long time period. And so they have just asked planetary scientists to send in proposals for um, the next mission in what they call the discovery class. All that means is they'll spend $450 million or less. Um, and that's going to launch in the 2020s. And is that a lot of money by NASA standards or is it chump change? I would say that's pocket change. Okay. So what are they going to spend this on? I mean, this is a big, these are some big decisions to make. So there are 28 proposals duking it out for this one um, little launch slot. Um, And Alex, who you said is our chief space nerd, kind of looked at all of these proposals, which aren't public. So she chased them all down, made a spreadsheet, and then we picked some themes out. So there are a couple of possibilities. We could go back to the moon because we haven't had any samples, moon rocks, anything taken from the moon since the last Apollo mission, which was in 1972. And we've been studying the moon from afar. We could go to an asteroid. They're very trendy now. Um, The European Space Agency landed on Comet 67P last year with Rosetta, and now everybody wants a space rock. There are lots of things orbiting Mars, and now we could go look at its two little moons, which are essentially overgrown rocks. 
Um, or we could go check out volcanoes on Venus or Io, which is a moon of Jupiter. I feel like going back to the moon is just like going on holiday to your next door neighbor's house. But people are excited about it. People are excited about it. And, you know, maybe giving this a little extra push is the fact that China sent um, a lander to the moon last year, the U-2 mission. U-2 means Jade Rabbit. It's the third in a series of Chinese moon missions, and they've already got the fourth and the fifth missions planned out. So there's a little bit of USA, USA about going back to the moon. But, I mean, you you had to work quite hard here. You have you have numbered these um, these options. These are three to five of 28 different plans. It's Well, it's more missions than that, but it's, it's five categories. Um, and I would say that maybe this was not a popular choice that we made with planetary scientists. We got some some pushback on this. Well, because they're all, you know, they're duking it out for this pocket change, <laughs> as we've already referred to. Yeah, I mean, NASA's um, planetary science budget has been declining. So it's a little bit like fighting over crumbs. And Alex maybe got some critical mail suggesting that we might influence NASA's decision. But, um, you know, if one nature listicle is influencing NASA, then the U.S. space program might be in trouble. So just for the record, we're not partisans. We're not like Team Saturn or Team Mars or even Team Moon. Well, and it seems from other recent discoveries just in the last week that you've been editing as well, that there's there's going to be plenty of stuff to find wherever we go, right? There's loads of stuff turning up that's fun. Right. So Alex, our reporter, went to the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in Houston, Texas. And um, based on the findings coming out of that meeting, it seems like the really trendy thing, if you're a planet or a moon, is to have an icy plume or a buried ocean. Um, Enceladus, which is a moon of Saturn, has a buried ocean, and we knew there were these plumes coming off of it. And um, recently, we discovered that the buried ocean has hot springs at its bottom, and that's where the plumes are coming from. So that's the first hydrothermal venting activity outside of Earth. Um, And the plumes that come off of Enceladus go and help form Saturn's rings, which is just kind of mind-blowing. That's freaking cool. I usually hate space, but that is cool. <laughs> and the reason that they look solid to us is that the dirt is going around really fast. Mm-hmm. So it tricks your eye. But And let's see. So we found ice and craters on Mercury. That's from the Messenger mission, which is going to die a planned and gory death next month when it plunges into the surface of Mercury after several years. Um, and there's a dwarf planet called Ceres, and there's a NASA mission that is started orbiting that dwarf planet on March 6th. Um, And it saw these two mysterious bright spots, and nobody knew what they were. Um, And now it looks like they are icy plumes, because everybody has an icy plume. And I have to say that's renewed my interest in Ceres somewhat, because I have a nostalgic kind of link to Pluto, but Ceres was sort of a new one on me, and and I just couldn't get that excited about it. Ceres is cool. So it's an asteroid, and it's a dwarf planet. It's kind of like that seen in, was it Chinatown? She's my mother, she's my sister. Um, (laughs) But it's the largest asteroid, I think, in the solar system. If I get that wrong, Alex is going to send me hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) How many Neanderthal genomes could you sequence for $450 million, Ewan? That's a really good question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how many Neanderthal genomes they could sequence. The first one cost Probably more than $10 million, but it's getting cheaper. So we could probably sequence maybe a 1,000 Neanderthals if we could actually find, find a thousand if we could actually find a 1,000 Neanderthals. What the value of that would be, I'm not sure. But Do you want your brain to break? NASA spent about a billion dollars on um, uh, a mission to monitor carbon dioxide. The first one failed at launch because they went with a, a rocket that turned out to be faulty, and then they had to rebuild it. 
and launch it and redesign it for a different kind of rocket. So, you know, that's... Sometimes Oops. things don't work. Yeah. Is this why they only have – they only get one mission out of 28 because they keep <laughs> messing up all the time? And I mean I guess money is, is, is short all around the U.S. government for science. Is that why there's only one mission – one small mission to fund? Right. Well, they plan these far in advance. So I mean that's, that's part of the reason. They fund missions at various price points. But it has been really hard for planetary scientists in the last couple of years. We edited – I edited a very sad story about two years ago when the planetary science budget was cut. Alex called around and had sad postdocs talking about how they were going to have to get out of the planetary science game because they were never going to get jobs because there was no money for emissions. And the situation has gotten a little better, but it's not great. It's expensive to go to space. A long time ago, I covered uh, Mars uh, landing. Um, this was the Mars Pathfinder mission back in the 1990s. And people were asking me if it was worth all the money. And I don't remember exactly what the dollar value was. But um, it occurred to me at the time that uh, one of the Jurassic Park movies had just come out. And it occurred to me that the the Jurassic Park movie had made more money than the mission cost so, you know, here's people are willing to pay more for uh, fake dinosaurs running around in the jungle than they are to, you know, explore a real new frontier. And um, for what we pay, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money when you uh, write all those zeros out. But um, when you consider what we pay for, for everything, um, I think it's well worth the money spent. Well, I'm surprised. Maybe NASA's missing a trick that they could be – funding space launches, these these missions, by making films. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. Or at least by, you know, like, I don't know, branding themselves a little bit better. But the last, you know, the last few kind of launches that have been on all of our radars, Rosetta and the Curiosity Landers, that they were real media events. They were really kind of snazzy and they had lovely videos to go with them and there was a real sense of drama and crisis if they went wrong. But that's going to happen in July. The New Horizons mission has been on the way to Pluto for about a decade and it's going to make its closest approach on uh, July 14th. And Pluto, which has been downgraded from a planet, is the last of the classical planets to be visited. And so New Horizons is going to get very close. We only have really bad, blurry pictures of Pluto from the Hubble Space Telescope, and we're finally going to get a look at this thing. And it's going to be awesome. Podcast listeners, you're going to be sick of Pluto in mid-July. <laughs> but, you know, one day I'm sure there will be an IMAX movie. And so, the, you know, that's part of the value of these things is uh, is the, the entertainment value and just the sheer awesomeness of uh, being able to explore these places. Well, let's move on from space to something that was quite controversial this week, um, a comment piece in Nature and then some associated comment pieces elsewhere and lots of coverage has focused on a moratorium that's been proposed on a new, new-ish gene editing technique. Matt, uh, your turn. Uh, sure thing. It's called CRISPR. What it is is a very high-precision way of editing DNA. And, you know, we hear so much about new um, techniques for understanding and sort of transcribing and changing DNA that our eyes kind of glaze over sometimes. But this one is really different. Um, this is a technique that's about three years old, and it's just so precise and so easy to do that people are starting to worry about sort of science fiction type things like designer babies. So there have been two editorials in the last uh, couple of weeks, one in Nature and one in Science, 
um, advising some caution in applying this to human embryos. One of them, uh, the one that came out in Nature, actually suggested a moratorium on research in human embryos. And the one in Science that came out more recently um, doesn't go quite that far, but says that we ought to really have a good think about this before moving forward. You know, that's all really interesting, but I think sometimes it obscures just how incredibly cool this is. Do you have a sense, can you tell us how much easier it is for scientists who want to go in and kind of change the, uh, the sequence of a bit of DNA? Right. I don't really have a good concept of that. Well, yeah, I mean, here's a good example. In the past, every time you would go out and do interviews about some new genetic technique, you'd say, you know, how about Jurassic Park? And they'd say, no, forget it, never going to happen. But there's actually an effort uh, using this technology to create a woolly mammoth um, from I mean, you're not going to create dinosaurs because for that you'd have to have a complete DNA sequence of a dinosaur. And it's just they've been gone too long for that. Um, but woolly mammoths have only been extinct for about 10,000 years or maybe a little more. And uh, and there are frozen specimens in Siberia that, that you can get enough DNA out of. Uh, so what you would do is you would use this technique and you'd use an elephant to uh, gestate it. I mean, so the gist is, right, that you're going to take a – you know, we've got the woolly mammoth genome. It's got some amount of genetic differences between an, an Asian elephant, which is its closest relative, and you're just going to one by one introduce those differences into the, the genome of an elephant egg cell, and you'd have a woolly mammoth, um, which is pretty pretty cool. Um, people are also doing this with the it's the passenger pigeon, or they're considering doing it with, with the passenger pigeon, which went extinct much more recently, maybe 100 or hundred and some years ago, which is even more closely related to pigeons living around today. I think the technology for this, you know, for de-extinction is a bit ahead of the conversation, I think, <clears throat> about whether we should, should we be bringing back these animals? I mean, why? You know, is it just because we can? You know, what are we going to do with them? There used to be billions of passenger pigeons that would kind of roam across North America, obscuring the sky for, for minutes on end. Um, is that what we want? I mean, do we want woolly mammoths, you know, grazing in, in Montana? <laughs> the answer is yes, right. because if we have them, we can make a great film and then we can fund all of NASA's future space missions. There you go. With the woolly mammoths that we, we can made. kill them again. Right. Well, the world is, and that's an interesting question. The world has changed a lot since these species went extinct. So there's more to it than simply uh, replay, you know, figuring out. Uh, their specific genetic makeup. Something has filled their slots. Yeah. I mean, you can't uncrack the egg. I think well, climate change might have erased their slot entirely in most places in the world, right? Well, and do we really need more pigeons? <laughs> <laughs> or sorry, rock doves. I don't want the pigeon lobby to send me hate mail. I think mail you mean since... rats with wings. <laughs> in London, we do not need any more pigeons. Thank you very much. Yeah, we even had a, a reporter was telling me she was talking to a source who uh, suggested that you know, some billionaire could uh, decide to give his daughter a, a unicorn for her birthday. That may be a little bit far-fetched, but that's the sort of thing that people who, you know, who understand this are saying, which just shocks me. Um, and so, but on a more sort of practical level, it could be done in an IVF clinic. Um, it's not so complicated that you need a fancy molecular biology lab. Um, so it really does open a Pandora's box. This discussion of woolly mammoths and making a unicorn and this sort of thing that sounds quite jovial and quite fun, is that going to help or hinder the, 
the debate about whether we should be doing this with human cells. I would say that the people who wrote these commentary pieces we're talking about would probably be horrified to hear us talking about all of this this way because it really uh, they really have uh, some serious concerns and what they I think what they want is a very sober discussion of uh, the issues involved and. Uh, exactly the opposite of (laughs) the sort of fanciful stuff we're talking about. So here's the question. Can you put the genie back in the bottle as a moratorium practical? In you know, was it the early 1970s, the Asilomar conference kind of put the brakes on an earlier form of genetic engineering. But these days, I mean, science has been globalized and democratized and there are a lot more people doing this kind of stuff. Can you get them all to agree or is this based on some kind of Cold War idea that the U.S. can say, stop, and everybody backs off? Well, the the word is that someone somewhere has already applied this to human embryos, not not brought them into the world, but at least tried it out. And in most places, it would be, in most countries, it would be illegal to uh, create a a human baby using uh, this technology. But the fear is that somebody somewhere will give it a try. There are lots of legitimate or potentially legitimate uses for it. Um, There's ways you can use it to treat um, diseases in adults. Um, For example, you could use it to alter a person's genes so that they were more resistant to HIV. There are actually experiments trying to do that right now and see if it really works there. And then in embryos, you could, for example, if you were concerned that a child might inherit um, Huntington's disease or something like that, you could go in and edit the genes to edit out that mutation. But of course, there are already technologies that you can use. If you have uh, Huntington in your family, you can do IVF and you can uh, do diagnosis of the embryos beforehand to see if they've inherited the gene and then implant the ones that don't have it. So those sorts of questions are the ones that need to be debated. When would it be good to use this? I find it really interesting that this debate about genome editing using this new technology, CRISPR, is happening right now because literally one or two months ago, the UK government took a step towards legalizing another form of germline modification, so-called mitochondrial replacement, which is designed to, intended to prevent the transmission of uh, so-called mitochondrial diseases like uh, various muscular dystrophies and things like that. And it's done through quite old technology, basically moving the nucleus of an egg from, with diseased mitochondria into a donor egg from another woman with healthy mitochondria. Yeah, it's but, so 90s. But it's so 90s. <laughs> but yet <clears throat> there was this big ethical review, you know, all this stuff, you know, public consultation. And the conclusion was that this is germline modification. And, you know, by and large, uh, the public and bioethicists and scientists said, you know, in this case, you know, the benefits outweighed the potential risks. And this is a, you know, potentially good use of this technology. Uh, This hasn't happened yet in, you know, to to prevent the transmission of disease in children. But lots of embryos have been have been created, um, just taken towards, you know, maybe 10 days in, in the lab. So it it strikes me that a lot of the debates surrounding mitochondrial replacement could be ported over to this. And that's, I suppose, the issue, isn't it? These conversations, similar to this in tone and, and qualitatively similar, are happening every time there's a new technique that sort of makes people feel a bit queasy and then everyone gets over it. Well, yeah, I mean, it may well be that we don't get over this. I mean, there are safety issues that haven't been resolved. Um, it's a very precise 
editing technique, but no one knows how precise it is. Um, you could be modifying other genes that you don't know about. And if you're going in and doing a lot of different modifications at the same time, like you would if you were trying to make a woolly mammoth, for example, that increases the chances of having unintended effects. And the fact that it's germline, meaning that it's passed on, you know, down through the generations after you've done it, not just to one person, means that those changes are permanent and it might take a very long time for you to really understand what all the effects are. Now, we've got one more order of business and it's because there are so many Americans in the office that I thought, you know, we should just address a few of the little differences that uh, divide us. But, you know, this this common language that we have does sometimes cause misunderstandings. Lauren, you've got a classic example of this. I do. First of all, I want to say that... um you can't see my USA foam finger. Um, no, I, actually, I wondered why you brought that. Actually, I'm lying. I have no foam finger. But I was editing a story uh, probably a month or two ago on a report on geoengineering. So I, I edited this story. Uh, I sent it off to the sub-editors in London. I got it back, and they had changed the headline to geoengineering scheme mooted. Now, to a British sub-editor, that means slightly dry academic report discusses plans for geoengineering. It's a very neutral headline. To an American, that means dastardly geoengineering plans stopped. (laughs) So we had a little negotiation and we changed out scheme and we changed out mooted, which might be one of the least favorite uh, verbs of American nature editors. The other other one is um, hotting up. Mm. In America, we say heating up. I'd like to moot that we ban the word moot from nature. Perhaps we should just put that, that in is, a style guide. That is our, our ongoing struggle because it mm-hmm. confuses everybody. The problem is that it's nice and short, and so it works in a headline. We won a major victory, though. The American nature editors have gotten the chief sub-editor here to agree that we can say truck instead of lorry. Mm-hmm. That's that, impressive. That was years in the making. With this small but significant victory, uh, we are going to end the show and all that remains is to thank you all for joining me Lauren Morello Ewan Calloway Matt Crenson thank you all for coming in where can people find you on Twitter if they so desire so I am at L Morello underscore DC I am at Ewan Calloway and I'm at MM Crenson excellent news Um, thank you all for coming in God bless America when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was Black Chat.